Thanks for listening to the Thyroid Fixer podcast with your host, me, Dr. Amy Horniman, aka The Thyroid Fixer. Also, functional medicine practitioner, hormone and weight loss expert. We're talking all things thyroid, hormone, and health-related in order to empower, educate, and transform you. Remember, I fix your thyroid, I fix your hormones, I fix your life. So let's get started. Dr. Amy, we're back and we're having a really good time talking about semaglutide, Ozempic, Wacovi, and Manjaro. Yeah. That's right. Manjaro. The new baby. The the new baby in the mix. All the different drug names. So so actually, you've had a little bit of experience playing around a little bit with these medications. So I'd love to hear, you know, kind of your thought on it. You know, let's just talk about it. Because I, in all honesty, I haven't tried them. You know, I am a guinea pig. I just haven't guinea pig that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we are the ultimate guinea pig. So our, our patients and our audience can thank us now for trying things out on ourselves so that we can bring you the real skinny, no pun intended, on these different medications that are out. And the ones that really seem like they have great potential. So first of all, all of these, I like to mention this, that all of these new type two diabetic medications, the like you said, the the Ozempic, the Manjaro, they're all peptide based, which I find fascinating because we know the benefits of peptides. We know that the FDA has already in the past pulled a lot of the good ones, like the the growth hormone releasing peptides. They've tossed those off the market. You can't get those even legally from a compounding. Well, maybe they're back in the compounding pharmacies, but I know poor TaylorMade had to com- basically completely shut down their peptide production of those. But yet, oh, I know the big pharma figured out that peptides work. So let's take a peptide, slap a drug name on it and charge a thousand dollars a month for it because they work. Are you finally at your wits end where you are tired of dealing with doctor after doctor? Maybe you've spent thousands on integrative or functional practitioners that have not helped you at all because they don't know the thyroid and hormones. They're not even testing properly. So come work with myself and my team. We prescribe to all 50 states and parts of Canada. I have you covered. I've been building this team for years so that I could help you no matter where you are. All you have to do is click the link in the show notes, book a free application call. We're going to go over your current health situation, what worked, what hasn't worked, all the things. And then we will pair you up with the right program for you where we will do it all. You will come out the other side of the program, totally optimized, getting your life back. You're going to recognize the person you see in the mirror again. Doesn't that sound absolutely amazing? Well, it might sound... Like you don't even believe it, but I promise you, I promise you, we will take good care of you. So click the link in the show notes, book a call today, and we'll be talking to you soon. So I just had to put that out there because I always find it fascinating when something that we've been using in the functional space or in the biohacking space becomes a drug all of a sudden, Hmm, right? Really interesting. So I have personally tried Manjaro, which is terzepatide. And the reason why I started with this one, it was the new baby on the market and a much lower side effect profile with the other ones, like the semaglutide, ozempic, trulicity. We saw a lot of large amounts of nausea in the beginning, sometimes debilitating. I've had a couple of patients that did semaglutide 
And basically by week one, week two, they were like, I just can't anymore. Sometimes crushing fatigue, crushing fatigue to where the treatment basically had to be discontinued because the side effects far outweighed the benefits of the medication. Then here comes along Manjaro terzepatide, which I lovingly refer to as the Beverly Hills soccer mom drug of choice for weight loss, because every single woman in the world went out and started on Manjaro, started on terzepatide, because here we are, something to help us lose weight. And this is a big issue, a big concern for women as we battle the bulge, as we come up against diets that don't work and this medication that doesn't work and hormone dysregulation. So we want that quick fix. We want the quick win. So we go to the things that are coming out that, hey, they might help us along, right? So everybody went out and started using, whether you were type two diabetic or not, started using terzepatide. Now here's the thing, it worked and it does work. It does work to help reduce insulin, lower blood glucose levels, ultimately lower A1C levels in type 2 diabetics, which is the intent in the beginning. That's why it is a type 2 diabetic medication. And in doing so, it also slows gastric emptying and significantly reduces appetite. Now, the reduction of appetite definitely helps with the weight loss component, but that's not the direct mechanism of action intended. It's not it's not an appetite suppressant medication. It's one of the side effects that occur because of the, the gastric emptying being slowed down and thus the patient just feeling that they're more full. And literally, you know, you could go all day and go, you know, I'm just, hey, I'm genuinely not hungry. So food intake obviously went down, caloric intake went down, and weight loss resulted in addition to the other mechanism of action of this drug to lower insulin, to lower A1C, and to balance glucose levels. So yes, I decided to be a guinea pig. I'm like, let's see what this is all about. Now, the beauty of Manjaro is, like I said earlier, the reduction of the side effects that occur. I personally, and we can get much more deeper into my experience, into the experience of my other patients, I I personally experienced no nausea whatsoever, no fatigue whatsoever. The appetite reduction was crazy the first couple of weeks to the point where I was like, this is almost uncomfortable because I almost feel like I'm malnourished. I needed to to force food, to force protein, and we can get into all these little biohacks that people can do if they decide to take it. But yes, in a nutshell, I dropped weight that, and again, I got to a point where I'm like, time out, this is too low. This is way too much weight loss in a short amount of time. So in about a two month span, I dropped about 10 to 15 pounds, almost to my competition weight. And that to me was a little bit too low. So that's my kind of overview of Manjaro terzepatide, my overview of my experience. And then we can go down different rabbit holes that we choose to go down. Right. Yeah. It's really interesting. I always kind of look at it and go, if it sounds too good to be true, it might be, (laughs) but you know, every, everybody and anybody is very interested in these, but I think it's interesting because Manjaro has a slightly different mechanism than what I, at least I see being prescribed a lot 
here in Dallas and, you know, what I hear people talking about online, which is the semaglutide and Ozempic. And like I said, I haven't had personal experience with it. I was curious. As somebody who has a history of digestive disorders, I'm like, I don't know if I want to take something that in the studies, 40% of people claim to have problems with diarrhea. That's Mm -hmm. huge. I mean, as a side effect, it's like, oh, you know, I don't know if I want to do anything that might bring that kind of symptom back. Right. (laughs) But, you know, I think I think there's a couple things about these drugs that are very interesting. If we look at semaglutide, which is a GLP-1 agonist, so it's a glucagon-like peptide 1. And then Monjoro is also is a GIP, so it's a glucose-dependent insulinotropic polypeptide. So they, they, they come from our gut, but they're different. So I think the first and most important thing is this is, this is a game changer for Western medicine. Because up until this point, it was pretty much, if you're overweight, it's an insulin resistance problem. And if you're diabetic, it's an insulin resistance problem that then becomes an insulin dependent problem. And that that's the whole kit and caboodle. Well, if that was the case, these drugs wouldn't work for weight loss. Because their major, major, major mechanism is really on the release of glucagon from the liver. And what's interesting is is your Monjoro has an insulin sort of modulating effect that's actually down. But if you look at semaglutide in the short term, it actually causes a rise in insulin and a reduction in glucagon, Yep, which is kind of interesting, you know, but it's because it's the first time that we've acknowledged that weight gain and obesity may be being driven by a whole nother hormone component, which you and I have talked before. I think that this is a big part of what's happening, particularly in women that are doing all the right things. They're like, my fasting insulin's a two, my A1C is a 5.0. I don't know what else I could do. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, I do. I do think this is a great tool for those battling obesity, because we know obesity is a huge epidemic in the country. And it's a great tool to kind of almost push past that plateau, but we can't mm-hmm. make it a crutch. And that's the biggest thing because we'll, we'll get into the different potential long-term effects of using these when you are not type two diabetic and you're not using it for those specific purposes and you have a really nice A1C and you have a really nice insulin level. What are those potential long-term side effects of using these, you cannot use them as a crutch. I see it as more of a short-term biohack that may be able to be utilized in a different way, spaced out as kind of a maintenance dose. So right now we see the semaglutides and the terzepatides, the Manjaro. We see that those are once a week injectable. Now we have some of the old school ones. What are the old school once a day? Isn't that like Wygovi? I think that's a once a day instead of a once a week. Wygovi is semaglutide as that's its name. So they took Ozempic and rebranded it as Wygovi, but it's a, what is it? A Liraglutide, I think it's, there's an older one that actually was approved by the FDA for weight loss and then basically is no longer being used. And that's actually the one, if you've seen kind of the stuff on the internet, it had a loose association, correlation, not causation, with an increase, at least in thyroid cancer, that there was this seemed to be this correlation between people taking that drug and an increase relative to the population or what would be expected in the wild. You know, so that that was a once daily. And I I guess that's important because 
because semaglutide, whether you're going Wachovia or Ozempic, whatever name you want it to be under, is actually designed to be a longer acting drug. Otherwise, if they hadn't manipulated it, you'd literally have to inject it every six hours because right. it's that GLP-1 is such a such a fast acting polypeptide. So the older versions that were uh, approved, yes, they had some loose association with, with thyroid cancer, but you know, to be honest, we haven't had these out that long to really see what their long-term effects on those things are. No, we haven't. I mean, definitely dosing it once a week is going to reduce the side effects as opposed to doing something once a day. And I think that we can start to manipulate the dosing for, again, for biohacking to obtain the other benefits, like we talked about off air, the the liver protection, renal protection, the brain protection. There's a lot, there's a laundry list of benefits to GLP-1 agonists outside of the weight loss component. And of course, we know that if someone is obese, that carries with itself its own host of comorbidities and and detrimental effects on the body. But we can use this as a as a biohacking component if we reduce the dose to twice a month or once a month. But there are ways to do this and there there's specific timing as well because if you start reducing your dose too soon, there is kind of a slingshot rebound effect that occurs before your new weight set point is in place and your body can hold on to that. So we can go deeper into that, but definitely it's interesting drug, but I can see there's a dark side and a positive side to it. There's the dark side of, of the, the side effects using it long-term when you're not really supposed to be using it because you're not a type two diabetic. And then, you know, there's the plus side of this can be a potential anti-aging biohacking medication if used properly. Right, right. And I think, you know, a lot of if you titrate it slowly, because I believe the Wagovi studies, which are where they took Ozempic for weight loss, and that's basically the rebranding of it. You know, they found the most effective dose is up to about 2.4 milligrams once a week. But, you know, some people are starting at, you know, really, really tiny, tiny levels Mm -hmm. and then slowly working up 200, 400 micrograms and then slowly working up. And I think the slower you work up and then also on the other side, long after you've achieved that sort of set point weight that you want to be at, if you titrate slowly down, that maybe you would see less of that effect less of that sort of rebound weight gain that you see from the studies. Mm -hmm. Definitely, definitely. So with the reduction of appetite that occurs, obviously, if you stop and start suddenly, which I did, so I'll give I'll give my personal experience. So I did once a week for two weeks. And then I had something come up that I had to stop. So I stopped for two weeks the rebound hunger was like nothing I've ever experienced. It took, it was insatiable hunger that came back on. So of course the concern is, am I going to gain the weight back if this is truly reducing my appetite? Am I going to gain the weight back when I stop it? Well, if you stop it too soon, the answer is definitely yes, because you will actually overeat. And I mean, when I say insatiable, listen, you and I have pretty good control over our nutrition and what we put in our mouth, this was almost like a lack of control. So I restarted it then. And I did that pretty consistently, the once a week dosing for about two months. And that's kind of where I guide my patients. I say, at least do it depending on how much weight you have to lose, the plateau that you're hitting. Let's say that you 
you know, you have 50 pounds to lose, you drop 20 and damn it, you were just stuck right there. Okay, then let's recreate a new weight set point. And let's use this for maybe two, maybe three months every single week. And then once you see your weight start to go down, and by the way, the the appetite reduction effect will diminish over time. So while it's very, very strong in the beginning to where you, you feel like I can't fit another morsel of food in my mouth, that will diminish over time. So you will be able to get into a more normal feeding pattern that you're used to without the overeating aspect of it. So hold that dose for a couple of months, reduce your, your weight and get to a new set point and hold there and allow yourself to get into better eating habits. And that's the other benefit that we're seeing. Those people that have carbohydrate and sugar cravings, they are true sugar addicts. And we're really working at changing what they're putting into their bodies, really changing up their nutrition, changing their macronutrients. This almost gives them the power to do that. So we're kind of doing two things at once. We're changing how you're eating and we're resetting your new weight set point. Once you get there, then you can start experimenting. I tell people go once every 10 days. And then maybe stretch it to 14 days. And when you do that, you start to go, okay, that that huge hunger, that insatiable hunger isn't coming back. I think I'm okay. Then maybe you can stretch it to once every three weeks and then once a month. And then in doing so, you're always checking your weight and seeing, am I staying at that new weight set point that is healthy for me? We're not talking about dropping underweight and being anorexic or being, you know, somewhere where I was, where I was absolutely too low body weight for my, for my frame, get to that new healthy weight set point. And then you can start with the the maintenance dose and the biohacking, because now you have retrained your body to like new and different foods, healthier foods. You've balanced your own blood sugar and insulin. You're not eating garbage where you're spiking your blood sugar up and down. And your body almost adapts to that new set point. I mean, you might fluctuate a little bit here and there, but you're not going to all of a sudden gain 30 or 40 pounds unless you truly go off the rails and just throw caution to the wind and go back to the ways that you were eating previously. The issues that we're seeing with the Beverly Hills soccer moms are they were pretty much eating anything and everything. And they were using this medication as an excuse to eat the pizza and the brownies and drink the bottles of wine every single day. And that's not the intended use. I guarantee you when they stop, their weight is coming back and then some. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you're right. You know, cause it's, it's not panacea. And then, and if you're not using it as a sort of crutch for those other healthy habits, I mean, even their own studies show their own studies, 2000, over 2000 patients in these approval studies showed that, you know, after two years, if they stayed on the meds, they were good. But as, as soon as they started coming off the medications, you know, and again, they weren't tracking what they were doing and, you know, what their protein composition and their food composition, and all these other things. So the weight gain was pretty substantial. It's like two thirds, right? Two thirds of the weight gain was back within a year. And what was interesting to me as I dug through their approval studies, 
is the people that had the most to lose, right? So let's say you had 50, 60 pounds to lose. Obviously, the earlier on when in taking this drug, the more dramatic, right? So you see these extraordinary sort of weight loss in the very beginning. And again, right. probably from your experience, you're just like, I, I can't, I can't eat. Like, I just don't want to eat. Right. And it obviously slows in the middle and then you have the slowing effect. Those individuals, yes, they had more weight to lose and they had subsequent weight gain with the removal. The vast majority did, but it wasn't to the same degree. And actually, the people that had, let's say, 10 pounds, 15 pounds, 20 pounds to lose, we actually see possibly more weight regain more quickly probably because the mechanism itself of glucagon release may not have been as dis this is what I this is this is Betty putting her spin on it research wise maybe it's because their glucagon dysregulation wasn't as pronounced as maybe somebody else and that a lot of the effect that they were seeing from the weight loss was just lack of appetite and some small changes in gastric emptying but it wasn't really that kind of back and forth effect between glucagon and insulin because that's what's getting dysregulated mhm Absolutely. Now, what are the beneficial? I looked this up a long time ago, and I know with, with your brain, you'll know this. What are the beneficial effects of glucagon itself? Because even back before these GLPs, I remember researching like, hey, is there a way to get glucagon into the system? Because I knew it did beneficial things. Now I'm just blanking on it. Yeah. So glucagon works in opposition with insulin in, in, a, in a healthy person. So when we eat glucose, right? So when we eat carbohydrates, glucagon should go down, insulin should rise, right? So glucagon's primary driver is to save us during starvation or and, and to sustain blood sugar levels when we are not eating, so like while we're sleeping. When we look at the metabolically deranged population, so people who are not metabolically sound, which I think it's interesting, I just have to say this, when you look at the studies, they'll say, these are healthy, obese individuals. I'm like, okay, Healthy meaning they have not been they have not been described with a ICD-10 code as a disease other than obese, right? So overweight, so they don't have diabetes, they're not hypertensive, but overweight is a symptom of a metabolic derangement. So you you can't be obese and truly healthy. That's just the reality. There's there's something wrong. Now, are you diseased? No, but there is some metabolic derangement. That's just the reality of it, right? But these individuals are pre completely healthy. So what the research shows is that, you know, in a healthy person, so 88% of us are insulin resistant, so we aren't them, right? Most right. of us are not them. In a healthy person, as insulin goes up, glucagon goes down, right? And what they find is that uh, particularly post-eating, so postprandially, as the food sort of in hits the bloodstream, glucose levels should go down. The response is going to be weaker when somebody has impaired glucose tolerance or they're diabetic or they're pre-diabetic, so we get less of a weakness. What's really interesting is what we see in the research is somebody who is, let's say, insulin resistant. So they get a pretty strong insulin response post-eating. So let's say you're supposed to get 10 molecules of insulin, you over-respond with 20. Well, what's interesting is glucagon in those people starts to dysregulate and it comes out at a higher level even post-prandially. So we lose that post-eating sort of drop and so glucagon's job is to make glucose out of non-carbohydrate ingredients. So your amino acids and your fats, right? So literally you could have somebody that is eating relatively healthy, but let's say they have some metabolic derangement, again, some level of insulin resistance. And we're talking insulin resistance at the pancreas, at the, at the liver, 
in the muscle cells, right? So maybe not full-blown diabetes, but they're going to have this subsequent rise of glucose after meals that's not just related to the glucose they ate, but it's glucagon producing it probably from some of the stuff they just ingested. Yep, exactly. Well, thank you for that clarification because I wanted people to understand (laughs) it as well as myself. I wanted a, a nice little review there as well. And kind of going back to, uh, before I forget to to touch on this, the thyroid cancer that they're yeah. seeing. So even in Manjaro right now, we are seeing contraindications do not use if you had medullary thyroid cancer. Well, when you really look at the research, it was done in rats and it was such a small percent. And I mean, you'll know better. You're, you're, you are the research mind, Betty. I refer to you every single time I talk about a paper. But but I know enough to know that when you look at that data, it was so small that personally, I would feel comfortable if my patient felt comfortable, if they were post-medullary thyroid cancer, if they wanted to use a very, very small dose of this, and we would monitor them, obviously, I, I would feel comfortable because the data just doesn't support the contraindication. Right. Yeah. And, and again, it was on a daily use GLP-1 early, early generation agonist that, you know, really isn't used anymore. Right. And so so they end up kind of black box warning across the board. And again, it's almost like the you can't take hormones, you know, if somebody in your family five generations back had breast cancer. <laughs> so, you know, I think it's highly individualized to the person and, and what you see. But I agree. And again, we're not rats. We do use rats and mice for studies, but we are not 100 percent rats and mice. And so I think I think, again, without human studies showing that, I think it's a it's, it's just a stretch. But of course, that kind of comes up in the in the research, too. You know, and just like the recent already debunked erythritol study that came out, they were using like 10 times the amount of terzepatide in these rats than they would even use ever on a person. So the normal dose for, at least with terzepatide, I know you were talking about semaglutide and you're right, starting at literally like 0.25 is where most people start with the terzepatide monjaro. It's usually, it goes 2.5 milligrams to five to 7.5 to 10. Very rarely do we have to go up to 15 milligrams, except in extremely obese, very, very diabetic populations. They were using an astronomical dose on a rat. They were using 100, 200 milligrams, which we would never use on ourselves. We would never use on a patient. So there you kind of have to look at, are we going to withhold a potentially very beneficial medication just because of this 0.1% chance that medullary thyroid cancer would come back. Obviously that has to be an individualized decision discussed with your prescribing doctor, but that's my two cents in the, the, in the contraindications. I mean, I know we normally see these drug ads with the list of, you know, you could lose an eyeball and die and, you know, have one leg, all these crazy side effects. But in the case of the peptides, in in the case of semaglutide, trisepatide, really the side effects are pretty minimal. And you have to really look at it with a fine-tooth comb, dissect it with a fine-tooth comb, because it may or may not apply to you. You might not even be in that risk category. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's a I think it's a a little a little kind of out there for sure. You know, and and again, both of them lead to weight loss. I I think if somebody could do trisepatide, you know, if they could get that one 
that would be a better choice just because statistically it looks better because it is that GIP1 and a GLP1 agonist. So it hits GIP and GLP1, which is just going to be a stronger, stronger dramatic weight loss and probably probably more sustained, I think, once we see that sort of play out. Because trisepatide hasn't truly been approved for weight loss, but obviously used off-label quite a bit. Definitely. And then when, when we're even looking at the populations who should use it, let's break that down too. So right now, and as the drug companies and insurance companies have figured out with the Beverly Hills soccer moms using it, they now have in place that you must have an A1C, I believe it's a 6.1 or above. I'm not sure exactly where the cutoff is, but you will not get approved for this medication rolling in with an A1C of a 5.5, 5.6, because they don't consider you in that class of type two diabetes. Although in functional medicine, you and I would certainly say, hey, you're really insulin resistant. You're probably walking that fine line, if not fully across the line of type two diabetes. However, you have to be pretty much severe in order for your insurance company to even think about covering it. Otherwise, it's $1,000 a month for that particular medication. Now, compounding pharmacies are coming out with these peptides that are available for a little bit of a, of a lesser price. I mean, it's not significantly decreased, but it's it's less than what you would you know, pay at the CVS or Rite Aid picking up your prescription. But they really are kind of cracking down on who should be using it and who shouldn't. Now, in my opinion, and then I would love to hear your opinion as well, Betty, for your practice. In my opinion, listen, if I have a patient that we're doing everything and I want to do everything first. So we don't use this as a first line for weight loss. I use it after we have tested your thyroid and hormones. We've gotten those online. We've used something like berberine to address insulin resistance, maybe even metformin to address insulin resistance. Everything is perfect. You have your diet under control. You're not eating garbage and using this as a crutch. And you just, you're stuck, you're stuck, you're stuck. And you're frustrated and I'm frustrated and we can't figure out why your body isn't shedding this weight. Then I will implement it as that that push. Let's push you past that plateau. Let's at least get your body jolted into some weight loss to release the fat stores and get you to your new set point. But you're not gonna be using this forever. You're not going to use this as a crutch for weight loss. You're not going to use this and then go out and eat like garbage just because your appetite's down and you feel, well, yeah, I can eat that brownie and that, that pizza. Not a problem. It, I only use it in those select populations that need that extra push, but only after we have done everything. We look at it a little bit. I think I I would say a little bit more conservatively. And again, you know, I think it's because of where I am you know, there's basically doctors opening up a dock in the box on the corner, you know, selling it for thousands of dollars a month because they know anybody will pay anything for it because it's the yeah. latest kind of yeah. weight loss crack on the market. You know, I think everything that you said is true. I think we have to first start with the very obvious things like clean up the diet, get the hormones straight, get the thyroid straight. And I, I'm glad you said berberine and metformin. Berberine and metformin, one of the most powerful things they do is suppress glucagon and the production of glucose from non-carbohydrate for non-carbohydrate foods, right? Your saturated fats and your amino acids, which is what's really happening when glucagon is stimulated. So those are very easy things that are inexpensive, easy to get, easy to use. 
And I think you can use this as something to get somebody who's stuck on that plateau, but I think they're probably going to have to commit to a, young, a longer use of it than what they think. You know, because I think people are thinking, I'll take it a couple months, knock 20 pounds off, and then I'll be fine. But I think looking at what the studies showed as far as that rebound weight gain, I think you need to be on it for a while before you try and withdraw it. And that withdrawal is terribly slow just mm -hmm. to make sure that you don't get that rebound effect. Not only the hunger that you experience, but just I think there's this rebound, you know, overexpression possibly of glucagon or whatever's happening because at 120 weeks, at the research, it, there's pretty significant weight gain in Pete Wentz they'd stopped. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I, I would definitely. agree. Yeah. You know, I, I think this is, I was just getting ready to go. And then there's some dark, there, there's some dark shit that's going to go down maybe. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, so, you know, some of it's that nausea and appetite suppression, like, you know, 44% of patients in the trials experienced nausea. So that's pretty substantial. So, you know, for some people it may not be repeatable. Right. And, and vomiting, it's 25% um, experienced vomiting. So, and then trisepatide, it was about 12, right? So trisepatide across the board is just less symptomatic. Yeah. And headaches, there was like 15% of semaglutide users were getting headaches, about 10% abdominal pain. And then, like I said, the really weird thing is that fasting insulin in semaglutide goes up for a little while. And then it probably normalizes, probably because of the effect on glucagon. So I would say if somebody's doing labs and they maybe not jump on trying to test insulin every couple of weeks to see what happened, because they might freak out thinking something's going wrong, but it's really the effect of the drug. Because I have a lot of people that we track things pretty tightly and they're like, oh my God, oh my God, <laughs> if my insulin goes up one point, I'm going to freak out. And I'm like, well, we have to know what's happening. But yeah, let's let's talk about the, the muscle mass loss that I guess Peter Atia actually pointed out, but I pulled up the study to look at it because, you know, I had to do it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That's what I love you for. Yeah, get into the study. What did you find? And then I'll get into the anecdotal component. Yeah, so um, so in most of these studies, they're very large populations, you know, 2,000 patients. The ability to check body composition is limited. They don't do that. So in Western medicine, weight loss, regardless of what it's composed of, no one cares, right? Just did you drop weight? Right. But in a study where they used DEXA, so they were using DEXA to look at body composition. They saw pretty significant loss of muscle mass, right, in individuals taking semaglutide. Right. And it was it was pretty it was pretty substantial looking at their research. Let's say you were an overweight person. You took off 26 pounds. Right. In an ideal world, you would want about two point five or less to be lean tissue. Right. So about seven pounds of that, give or take a little bit to be lean muscle mass because you, you carry more lean muscle mass to carry that weight. So people unless you're doing like hardcore bodybuilding, you're going to lose muscle mass while you lose body fat. Right. So everybody has to get okay with that if you're losing any substantial amount. So if in those 140 patients that they looked at, they lost an average of 34 pounds, 25 of that was lean body mass. So that's, that's substantial, man. Because you look at somebody like my age, you know, somebody in their 50s, or if they're knocking on late 50s door, it's almost insurmountable to put that back on statistically without extraordinary effort because muscle protein synthesis is so dysregulated as we get older. So you do, you know, and any woman be like, I don't give a shit. I fit in my jeans, <laughs> you know? And it's like, you do care because your all cause mortality and risk for mortality goes up with lack of lean muscle mass. Now we don't really know why that is. And I think you can probably talk about that darker side, you know, that's a pretty significant amount of muscle mass loss. It really is. And when I first read Peter Atia's article, 
you know, you kind of glance over and you go, well, not me, because I do lift heavy shit and I keep my protein intake up and and I'm doing all the things to really maintain my my lean muscle mass. And then it happens. And then literally it's ironic. It was within a couple of weeks of reading that article, I started to notice that my my lean muscle mass decreased. And you and I can notice that very easily at the gym where something that was easy all of a sudden becomes hard. We don't get that same pump. We don't have that same definition. We don't have that same that same fullness. And then ladies, your skin starts to get loose. Why? Because you don't have that area filled up with muscle. Yeah, no, it's not filled up with fat anymore, but I know the, I didn't have fat on my arms as I was taking terzepatide, Manjaro. And then all of a sudden I have this loose flabby skin on my arms because the muscle mass decreased that was once filling out that area. That's what freaked me out. And then I was like, okay, that's it. I mean, I already started spacing it out because of the drop in body weight. Once I spaced it out, I managed to come back up to a, a better body weight. I would say I lost 10, put on like five. And that was fine. I could hang out right around there. But to see the loss of muscle mass that I work my ass off for, literally and figuratively, and not, I, I really don't want to work my ass off. I want to keep it on. That freaked me out. And I was like, you know what? There really is something to this. So as you are, and, and, and Benny and I have talked about this in another podcast regarding protein as you age, just like you said, Betty, the, the effects of losing muscle, that sarcopenia that occurs with age has, again, with it, a host of detrimental effects on the body that one could even argue, which is worse? Is it better? Do I want you to be obese and have metabolic syndrome and type 2 diabetes and heart disease? No. But at the same time, I also don't want you to have osteoporosis and broken bones and a lower metabolism because you don't have that lean muscle mass protecting you and everything else that goes along with, with sarcopenia. So it's kind of like we're, we're doing this juggling act of we need to find a happy medium here because we, we can't be doing something extreme to just bring on a whole new set of, of detrimental effects and symptoms and issues that our body now has to deal with as we age. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the last thing anybody wants to be is a fat, skinny person. You know, if it is, if even if you look at it and you go, okay, even if it was just for aesthetics, I just want to like what I look like in the mirror. Like you said, muscle is your metabolic girdle, right? It's your metabolic kind of spank stuff. If I yep. lose a bunch of muscle mass, everything gets saggy. So if you don't like your abdomen, the last thing you want is saggy skin on your abdomen, despite the, you know, despite the fact that you're wearing a size four, right? Like, or whatever that is. Yep. And so, you know, I think it's really important to, to, to look at that possibility. Now, what I think, you know, here's the thing is again, these studies are done in populations that aren't aware in many cases of diet composition, that aren't aware of changes in their body over time and what happens. And so, you know, they go back to eating the standard American diet. If they ever left it, they probably kept the standard American diet, but ate a lot less of it while they were on the drug. You know, one of the things with nausea and vomiting, most of the time, and it seems to be true, particularly with these drugs, is protein doesn't sound that good right? Did you find that? Or did you find that you had to kind of fight? Like I need to choke down the chicken breast or the fish? Yes. 
Yes, yes, and yes, 100%. Yeah, the Ritz crackers looked a lot better than a chicken breast. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 So, so maybe, maybe like you said, the protein intake that was probably subpar and inadequate in many cases as a, as a percentage of calories, right. As a percentage of food intake that may not have been adequate to begin with, or even if it was now has dramatically dropped and they're not weight training. They're definitely a lot, lot lifting heavy because women who weight train, you know, they're like, I'm doing weight training. I'm like, if it's just arms and upper back and shoulders, you are not weight training. Right. Right. Not just the hand weights at home. Like that's not, you're not doing anything. Those are vanity muscles. Right. right? So they're not doing that. So maybe some of it is a side effect of all these other diet and lifestyle pieces that we're not seeing, but I think it's important to pay attention to, you know, I've, it's funny because we were talking earlier in the office and and I told everybody in the office, I was like, Amy and I are going to be talking about semiglutide Uh (laughs) and and everybody goes, I cannot believe you have not guinea pigged yet to do it. I was like, I know, I know I probably will. It's just, you know, (laughs) I just hadn't, because I, I just wanted to see, I put on muscle very, very easily because I, I have the muscle power gene. I was born to lift everything and sprint. And yep. so it'd be very interesting to see what I feel because I think I would catch it very quickly just because yep. I can tell if I lose muscle mass and I can tell very quickly if I get weaker in the gym. Definitely. And I almost think there has to be like a pre-consultation with any patient, no matter where you are any patient that is going to be placed on this. And of course we don't know, we know that this is not happening in conventional medicine where you sit down with a patient, you go, okay, Susie, when you start this drug, here's what I really want you to do. But this is what I would tell you, be cognizant and force the protein down, get a good high quality protein shake, not just garbage way that you're getting a GNC, a, a nice bone broth, bone collagen based protein shake, maybe high quality plant based one that doesn't cause a ton of inflammation, although that would be second on my list. And be prepared to take that in maybe even a couple times a day. And if you tell me, but I can't, I'm not hungry. I would say, I don't care. Force it. You force the protein down. You force the food down. Because if you end up Remember HCG diets, right? We, we, back in the day, and I never, I, I was never a guinea pig for this, but I saw people go through it. You take these HCG drops and you're on a 500 calorie a day diet. What do you think is going to happen to your metabolism when you come off of that? What do you think is going to happen to your thyroid function and your T3 production when you come off of that 500 calorie a day diet? You are going to be left with zero metabolism. So not only have you now starved yourself now when you come back to eating like a normal human being all of that weight is going to come on and then some because you have no metabolism left to burn anything so you have to if you're going to use this as a true long-term weight loss health benefit tool you have to force the food specifically the protein and i don't want to hear the excuse that you're not hungry and i wish i could go back and tell myself that I did force it a little bit because like I said, it almost felt uncomfortable. It almost felt like there's a malnourishment thing happening here. I better do something about it. But if I would have been more cognizant, I would have tracked my protein intake daily. I would have done two, three protein shakes if I had to, just to get that level in and to keep that level up, knowing what I know now about the loss of muscle mass. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's, that's a, such an important part of, of this whole process and this whole, 
you know, new kind of new landscape of medications and how they may work. I mean, I think, you know, like you and I talked in the very beginning, I think people that have been struggling for years and especially if they have considerable, I don't think this is the 10 pound weight loss. I don't think this is a panacea for somebody that wants to get ready to go to the beach in June, right? Like this, right. that's not what this is for because chances right. are looking at the research, you're going to rebound and have more weight on you at the end of the year than what you did before you started, right? That's right. just what it looks like because it's not really the mechanism of what's really going on and what's wrong. But I think for somebody that's been struggling for a very long time, that this may be the part that may help do all of those metabolic things that we haven't really had anything medically to intervene. And even nutritionally, there are very few things that really, some of the polyphenols seem to help here a little bit like EGCG and stuff like that, but they're not, they're not to this degree. And that's the real truth because all of us know of supplements that have had those different sort of fat burning poly, you know, polyphenols in it that, you know, they help, but they're not good. They're not, they're not helping you drop, you know, 35 pounds of your body weight. Right. You know? So. Yeah, exactly. So to summarize, I'll, I'll go first, then you go. I would say in general, I think there's something here. I think this is a great tool. I think this is a great discovery in our battle against obesity. But again, we can't use this as a crutch. We can't use this to as an excuse to go eat whatever we want. And then we're going to take this and we're going to lose the weight. It has to be used just like everything in conjunction with lifestyle changes, with dietary changes, with hormone optimization. Because if you don't do those things, if you're, if you're not using these GLPs in conjunction with the changes that need to be made, it's going to be pointless. You're going to come out the other side. You're going to gain the weight back and possibly be lower muscle mass on the other side too, worse off than you were before the utilization, the implementation of it. So that's my two cents. I think there's, I think there's a piece here. I think it's great. I think we can use it in cir certain circumstances, but this cannot become an abused medication like phenermine, like fenfen, all of that, because although it's not going to blow your heart up like those did, it still is going to leave us with some detrimental effects that can be health threatening. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would agree with kind of all those pieces. I think, I think that cost is a consideration. These drugs, even when compounded by compounding, I mean, yeah, I think Ozempic's what somewhere between $1,000, $1,500 a month. And Wagovi, the rebranding of it is easily that. Trisepatide, I don't know, but I would assume it's probably even more expensive in most yeah. cases, you know, if somebody's not a diabetic. And so, you know, even if you're getting it compounded and maybe it's $500 a month, or $400 a month, or whatever it might be, you know, you're going to sign on for that for several months, for a long, probably a good three to six months at least at a minimum and possibly longer, if you have more to lose, I'd say plan mentally that it might be a year. Otherwise, again, I think that rebound effect is pretty substantial. And then I, I look at it and I go, okay, those symptoms are pretty significant, right? The, the set negative side effects. And if for somebody they have those, there are other things like berberine, like metformin, you know, that we can give that can help particularly with GLP-1 kind of activity, the things of glucagon, because now we know and we have bona fide proof, thank you, pharma, for paying for the studies, that it's not just about insulin, right? That your weight gain may have, have something to do with insulin, but it's not the direct effect of insulin. 
I think that's an important take home for everybody. Because if you hear another person say, well, it's just you got to lose, you got to lower your carbohydrates and then you'll lower insulin, you just lose weight. If you're doing that and that's not happening, it's because this other mechanism is, mechanism is probably also broken. I love these conversations. We get to dive so you. deep and give people such great information. So thank you, Betty. I greatly appreciate it. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Amy. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I hope everybody got a lot out of this one. <laughs> Definitely. There's no way they couldn't. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I hope you loved it. And as always, if you would be so kind to leave a review, if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, that would be absolutely amazing. I read all of them. Also, anything that you hear on this podcast is not intended to diagnose or treat any kind of medical condition. So we always recommend that you check with your medical provider, your doctor, your nurse practitioner before implementing anything that you hear on this podcast. And if you want to find out more about working together, you can click the link below in the show notes to book a discovery call. And there you'll be talking to a member of my team. They are an extension of me. They are amazing. And you and I will talk after that once we get you all signed up and you and I get to work together. All right. I hope to see you soon.